Okay, so Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, or the end of flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood, upon, a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing according, uh, of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Thus far the reading of God's word. So there you have it, Noah and the Flood, part one. Uh, Just a recap of where we are, Uh, these first 11 chapters of Genesis, of course, are considered, uh, called, they're they're often called primeval history. Um, In these first 11 chapters, you have uh, an advance of nearly 2,000 or more years of history compacted into a relatively short amount of text. Um, you go from creation, uh, the, you know, creation from the very beginning, all the way up to the time of Abraham. Uh, and sometimes the narrative slows down to take account of either someone like Adam and Eve or Cain and Abel. Sometimes the narrative speeds up, like you have in chapter 5, where you go through 10 generations of people in one chapter. You know, 1,500 years, 1,600 years covered in, in one chapter as we speed through. You know, you can almost see, you know, like if you were watching this on TV, you'd, you'd see a scene, a little story, and then like, you know, you know the, the thing would just kind of speed ahead and then slow down again when it gets to Noah. And we're going to look a little bit at Noah, and then it's going to speed up again until we get to the time of Babel, and then it's going to speed up again, and then we're going to get to the time of Abraham. Or Abram, before, this is before he's called Abraham. Now all of this, um, these first 11 chapters, well, I mean, they're history. You know, we believe that they're history. We believe that this is God's first-hand eyewitness account of these events. 
given to Moses as the people of God are on the precipice of entering into the promised land. Uh, they need to know these things. They need to know why they're coming into this land. Why this land? I mean, it's been 400 years since their fathers have been there. Uh, their forefathers have been there. So why this land? Why now? Why, you know, why is God covenanted with us? All these things. Um, you know, why, is, you know, why is God bringing judgment? All these things. You know, and we, you know, Genesis lays the foundation for all of this. Not just for the people of God in that period of time. It lays the foundation to all of history. It lays the foundation for our own faith. If we don't believe in a real, literal Adam, then, then Jesus is a liar, right? Because he talked about Adam. Paul talked about Adam. Uh, Adam is not some fictitious figurehead that stands in for Neanderthal or anything like that. Adam was a guy, a man, created by God in the garden on day six with all the other earth-dwelling animals. Um, if you don't believe in, you know, in, a, in a literal flood, well, then a lot of... What Jesus says in the Gospels and what the writers in the New Testament talk about makes no sense because they refer to the flood as an actual historical event. So it's very important that we understand this is history. Many want to look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis and call it myth, fable, legend, uh, poetry, um, things like that. Uh, we would resist that, and we should resist that. Uh, if you compromise God's word at any point, you compromise the whole thing. There's no point. Because if you could say, well, this is myth, but this, this isn't, well, why? What, who gives you the right to, to say that? <laughs> On what basis are you making that judgment? Um, because you feel that way? You know? <laughs> you know? Otherwise, it's like, no, you know, we take this as God's word. This is God's firsthand account. Um, and... As we get to Noah and the flood, just as it was with the days of creation, you're going to see um, people call this into doubt. You don't, you know, they'll say, well, certainly you don't believe in a guy who made a boat and put all the animals in the boat bouncing around on the ocean. Well, no, I don't believe in that. <laughs> uh, I believe that the ark is this huge, ginormous uh, uh, vessel that was created, that, that Noah made, and that God brought the animals. Yeah, I mean, I, but, you know, I do believe that there was an ark, that there was a Noah, and that he preserved, uh, God, that, Noah, that God preserved Noah through the flood with all these animals. So these are, these are all things that skeptics are going to call into doubt. You're going to call, you know, we, we call this a global flood, but the skeptics are going to call that into doubt. Even some Christians want to say, well, maybe it was localized. Um, you know, you can't just assume because it says all or every that it means all or every except when it doesn't mean all or every. So, I mean, you know, it's, you know, I mean, you get into all kinds of issues when you start trying to accommodate this for what? For, to, to receive the, you know, respect of the world? I mean, why? They're not going to respect you just because you accommodate on a certain, you know, a few certain things here and there. No, we believe this to be history. We believe what God says here is true. Now, last time we looked at the first eight verses, and, and really verses one through eight of chapter six are part of a smaller, well, lar I should say larger section that began in chapter five, verse one. So from chapter five, verse one to, the, uh, to chapter uh, six, verse eight, 
is the book of the generations of Adam. So this is the account of Adam's descendants. Usually when you see the book of the generations or the generations of this person, that person has already left the scene for the most part, and now you're seeing um, his descendants. Now, it's not going to be the case here when we look in chapter 6, verse 9, but uh, you know, this is the legacy of Adam. And what's the legacy of Adam? Well, the legacy of Adam is a fallen, broken image of God passed on from generation to generation, and the preponderance of death being uh, uh, introduced into the world because of sin. And then chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, show how this sin just grew and grew and grew to the point where the Lord regretted that he had made man and said he was going to bring judgment that his days, his days are numbered, quite literally, 120 years, his days are numbered. We see the stories of the mighty men of old, the men of renown. We see the stories of the Nephilim. And we see the stories of, of you know, how th- this great wickedness comes in as the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were attractive, and they took them and, and made them wives, and so on and so forth. This great preponderance and growth of wickedness throughout the world and God says I will blot blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land verse 7 and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens and then you get in verse 8 this little ray of hope this little glimpse but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord and there you have it in this in this mess (laughs) how mankind has turned God's good creation into a world in which all the thoughts and every intentions and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, here you have Noah, who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, of course, being a descendant of the godly line of, of Adam through Seth. Uh, we know that in, at the end of chapter 4, uh, when Seth was born, it says that uh, then or when his son Enosh was born, at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. Uh, When you go through that genealogy in chapter 5, you get this nice little uh, break in the middle there in verses 21 through 24 where Enoch, uh, Enoch the son of Jared, uh, he is such a righteous man that he doesn't die. God takes him. He translates him. Uh, he lives 365 years, and he walked with the Lord, and then he was not, for God took him. Now, you know, when we say the godly line, we don't want to make the assumption that every single one of them were as godly as Enoch or Noah, but certainly the, the traditions passed on from father to son would have been this idea of the worship of the Lord. Now, some may have done so greatly, like in the case of Enoch, some may you know, maybe barely. Uh, but this tradition of worshiping the Lord is passed along from Adam to Seth and eventually ends up with Noah where the point, to the point where Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. So as we look at this passage tonight, verses 9 through 22, we're going to see here, this is the third kind of uh, part of Genesis here. So, you know, you see in verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. And that's going to take us to the end of chapter 9. Where in chapter 10, then you see these are the generations of the sons of Noah. So that will be the next part in the story here. So this part, the third part, deals with Noah and the flood and the aftermath of the flood. So 
God is going to pronounce judgment. This is the 30,000 foot view. God is going to pronounce judgment. He's going to spare Noah. He tells Noah to make an ark. He preserves Noah and his family and, and uh, a handful of the animals, a sampling of the animals. And, and then when it's all said and done, God was going to make a covenant with Noah. And it's going to be a different kind of covenant than you see in the covenants that come after it uh, because it's not a salvific covenant in the sense of, of promising salvation. It's, it's more of what in the lines of what we call a common grace covenant because in that covenant, God says, I will preserve the normal course of things, the seasons, the, uh, you know, the natural way of things. I will not destroy the earth with a flood. Uh, so, and then he you know, sets the sign of the rainbow in the sky. Uh, we're going to try to reclaim the rainbow when we get to that part of the, of the text. But he's going to set a covenant with, he's going to establish a covenant with Noah uh, that will sort of preserve seed time and harvest, rain and seasons, and so on and so forth. But for tonight, our focus again is uh, leading up to the flood and the judgment that God is going to bring on the earth here. So as we look at these verses tonight, the theme I have for tonight is, as wickedness fills the earth, God promises judgment but makes a covenant with Noah. That's what we're going to see in these verses uh, tonight. As wickedness fills the earth, God promises judgment but makes a covenant with Noah. Well, first we'll look at verses 9 and 10. The generations of Noah. So this kind of introduces the new section here. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we begin the third part of Genesis. We're reintroduced to Noah. We saw Noah at the end of chapter 5. Uh, we saw him last time is in verses 1 through 8. And we're reintroduced uh, through Noah. And what follows again is the story or the generations of Noah, which I said will carry us on through the end of chapter 9. Now note in verse 9, Noah is described uh, with three descriptors, really. He's described in three ways. He's described as a righteous or a just man. He is blameless or perfect. And he walked with God. Those are the three ways that The Bible describes Noah, that he was a righteous or just man, that he was blameless or perfect, and that he walked with God. Now, there's a couple of interesting things here. Um, I found this interesting as I was researching this. If you go to the book of Ezekiel, just for a moment... Ezekiel chapter 14. This is a... I only mention this because this is an interesting uh, judgment that that comes through the prophet Ezekiel and it, it references Noah in it. So, uh, this is God's judgment through the prophet Uh, Ezekiel to Jerusalem. So in Ezekiel chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, 
and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they ravage it, and it be made desolate so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these three, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon the land and say, let a sword pass through the land, and I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men, again, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. Now, I only mention that because Noah, Job, Daniel, they're all described as righteous men. And, and really, if you think about it, they're, you know, I mean, Daniel, you read through the, you know, the book of Daniel, nothing is really said bad about Daniel. Noah, well, he has that little incident at the end with the vineyard. And Job, well, you know, if you read through Job, he gets to a point where he's about to break and crack, and that's when God steps in. But, you know, all three of them were described in the Old Testament as righteous men. And I just find it interesting because what the prophet Ezekiel is saying, or what God is saying through the prophet, is like, the land is so bad, <laughs> and, and, and the sin of Israel is so bad that even if these three righteous men were in it, they would only deliver themselves. <laughs> The rest of you, the rest of the land, in other words, their righteousness, as good as it is, it would not be enough to deliver anybody but themselves from the judgment of God. I just find it interesting. But there, again, you get this description that Noah was a righteous man. Unfortunately, righteousness does not transfer from one to the other when you're talking just normal human beings. I can't impute, you know, Noah can't impute his righteousness to us. Uh, and as we're going to see, it's not that kind of a righteousness. Um, it's more of a relative righteousness. Um, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 5, there's another comment about Noah. We may have referenced this at one point in the past. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And this is talking about in the context of false prophets, false teachers, and Peter's saying the false teachers, they will be judged. And the reason he says that is because, look, hey, if God did not judge, or if God did not spare the angels, this is chapter 2, verse 4, when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, that is his wife, his sons, and their wives, when he brought a flood upon the earth, uh, upon the world of the ungodly. And there, you know, Peter is talking about how Noah not only was a righteous man, but a herald of righteousness. Uh, he was, in a sense, proclaiming the gospel, at least, you know, a very nascent form of the gospel, that judgment is coming unless you repent. Um, that's kind of what the, you know, that's how Jesus started. That's how John the Baptist started. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, Noah was there 
proclaiming, heralding the righteousness of God because judgment was coming upon the sins of the world at that point in time. So he's a righteous man. He was a herald of righteousness. Now, that word righteous uh, in the Hebrew, tzaddik, it means, it means pretty much what you think, but we need to acknowledge that this is, again, this is a relative righteousness. He is not righteous inherently before God. right? He is righteous compared to the growing wickedness that you see in the world. Okay? He, is, he and he alone, and presumably his family, are the only ones who are calling upon the name of the Lord. They're the only ones who are acknowledging that there is a God in heaven. The rest of the world is just going on and doing its own thing. So he's not righteous in the sense that he has an inherent righteousness in which God is obligated by that righteousness to reward it. It is a recognition by God of Noah compared to everyone else uh, in, in, in the world at that time. It's, it's a righteousness by faith, not inherent. Same thing with blameless or perfect. There the word tamim, it means complete or whole or entire or sound. Um, it's used frequently in the Old Testament in regard to the animal sacrifices. So when in, in, in Jewish religious rituals, when they were called to bring a goat or a bull or a sheep or whatever before the Lord, they are told it has to be, it has to be uh, unblemished, an unblemished lamb. And, and that's what God is saying here about Noah. He's, he's unblemished. He, he's not perfect in the sense that he's sinless. All right? We have to understand this. You know, just because it says it here, we know the rest, what the rest of the Bible says. No one is perfect. No one is righteous. Right? No, not one. When Paul says that, he's not lying. He's not, well, except for Noah. You know? No, Noah was not righteous in the sense of before God for his sin. But God, you know, remember, what does verse 8 said? God, uh, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It was a grace because of Noah's um, dependence upon the Lord. His faith, it brought this righteousness. It brought this favor. It brought this, and, and, and God looks at him and sees him as complete, as whole, as, as blameless, again, compared to the rest of the world. And he walked with God. This phrase is used, we saw this earlier, with Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Now, Noah wasn't translated, but uh, Noah was preserved through the flood, to be sure. So Noah walked with the Lord. Abraham, will, when he comes on the scene, he's going to be called by God to walk before me, to walk according to my ways. So this is the description of Noah. Now, um, I like how the New Living Translation takes this verse in verse 9 here. They, they render it, This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. I think that's a good way to understand this verse. He was the only righteous, he was the only person in the world who was acknowledging that there is a God. We looked at this last time. It's the only verse in Hebrews 11 that refers to, uh, to Noah. But in Hebrews 11, verse 7, there it says, by faith, again, that's the entire point of the chapter. 
you know, this is often called the Faith Hall of Fame, but really, you know, if you look at the list of the names in this chapter, some of them are quite, you know, you wouldn't expect them to be in Samson. <laughs> Samson's in this list. It's like, what did Samson ever do that was good? You know, Jephthah, uh, you know, Barak. You know, I mean, these are guys in, in, in this quote-unquote faith hall of fame. Um, really, it should just be called a bunch of scoundrels that are, that are saved and, and justified by grace through faith. I mean, that's kind of more what it is. I mean, some of them are more scoundrel than others, but none of these people are, are sinless. None of these people are righteous in the sense of a perfect righteousness. It is always they are accepted by faith. Because again, that verse 6 is so important. Without faith, it is impossible to please God or Him. Uh, for whoever would draw near to God must believe He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. By faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But with faith, very much possible to please God. And we see here Noah, like everyone else in this chapter, like everyone else in the world, by faith, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, as in, you know, i.e. the flood, uh, in reverent fear. Again, there's that, that, that acknowledgement, right? You know, what, is the, what, do, what do the Proverbs say? That the, beginning, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, it is the fool who, who, uh, who rejects God, who... who uh, who says that there is no God, but it is the one who is wise in reverent fear, constructed an ark because God commanded him to for the saving of his household. And by this, God condemned the world, or he, Noah, I guess, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Again, all of this is by faith. The righteousness he had is by faith. We should not lose sight of that. Then in verse 10, we're introduced again to Noah's three sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We saw them at the end of chapter 5. Uh, we'll see them again later uh, in chapter 9. Uh, they're the ones that are um, part of the little vineyard incident. I don't know what you want to call it, the, the vineyard episode. Uh, they come onto the scene a little later. And then, and then their genealogy is traced uh, in chapters uh, 10 and 11. But... So here you have Noah and his three sons. Um, now, despite the fact, of course, that the world is growing in wickedness, I think the life of Noah shows that there is always a faithful remnant of God's people about. That's, that's something to take away from this, okay? At least these first couple of verses. Despite what's going on in the world, there's always a faithful remnant. Now, that remnant may be very small at times. Sometimes that remnant is quite large, uh, I may have referenced this before, but in the days of Elijah, when Elijah was battling the prophets of Baal, when he thought he won a great victory, and, and it, it, it changed no one, apparently. He was depressed and despondent and ran off and, and, and thought that he was the only one in all of Israel that, that followed the Lord. And the Lord assured him, he's like, no, no, Elijah, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. You're not alone. <laughs> um, there's always a faithful remnant. Always a faithful remnant. I mean, think of how the Lord, as we'll see this when it comes up too, when the Lord is about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness, and, and Abraham starts to plead with them. 
He's like, Lord, will you destroy the city if there's 50 righteous? Now, I don't know how many people were in that city, but certainly a heck of a lot more than 50. Uh, you know, thousands, maybe tens of thousands. Who knows how many were, were there? But Noah's like, or Abraham's like, 50. Will you destroy for 50? He's like, no, I won't destroy for 50. And you know how he, he begins to barter down. How about 45? You know, and then 40. Do I hear 35? 30, you know, and he gets down. 10. And God says, for 10, I will not destroy it. Problem was, there wasn't 10. <laughs> there was Lot, another guy that the Bible calls righteous, and you would think, really, Lot? Yeah, Lot. He's called righteous Lot. Um, again, remember, this righteousness is not an inherent righteousness. It is a righteousness that is received by faith. There's always this remnant, though. Uh, despite the darkest days of the church, of the people of God throughout the history of the Bible, God preserves a remnant. God will preserve a remnant. And here, the remnant is quite small. Eight people. <laughs> eight people out of who knows how many. Take a guess. I have no idea. I mean, these people were you know, living hundreds and hundreds of years, having sons and daughters through an entire time. Who knows how many people are there? Hundreds of thousands, millions? Eight people, but a faithful remnant. Well, now we go to verses 11 through 13 as we see the coming judgment, the coming judgment. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now this echoes what we saw last time, right? Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it says how the earth was spoiled due to man's sin. The earth was spoiled. That same word there for corrupt. All right, this is where you get to learn a little Hebrew. You want to learn a little Hebrew? Just nod and say, yes, you want to learn a little Hebrew. <laughs> the word there is shahath. I just like saying that, shahath. It means to corrupt. Now, it's the same word. He uses it multiple times here. So now the earth was shahach, corrupt in God's sight. And it was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, that's used in a passive sense. But then when you get down to the end of verse 13, he says, I will destroy them. That's also the same root word. So it's used to speak about how the earth is corrupted because of the sin. And then God is going to corrupt it or to destroy it because of its sin. That same word there is used to speak of the earth's corruption by man's sin. That in its, as, as it is also used to speak of God destroying the earth in verse 13 and verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy it. Shahath. There, all flesh which is on, in, which is, in which is the breath of life. So it's corrupted. Sin corrupts the world. Sin corrupts the earth. 
We saw that in, <clears throat> excuse me, with Cain and Abel. When Abel was killed by his brother Cain, God says, your brother's blood cries out to me. Your brother's blood has spoiled the earth. It has corrupted the earth. When God is about to bring judgment on the Canaanites and, and dispossess them using the Israelites as his instrument of judgment, he says their, their sin has corrupted the earth and it's going to vomit them out. And, and God is using Israel as his uh, sword of judgment in that case. Then he promises and turns right back around and tells the Israelites, if you sin while you're in the land, if you break covenant with me while you're in the land, the land will vomit you out because your sin corrupts the land. That's what we see. And then, you know, the whole idea of the 70 years of exile is so that the land can heal from the corruption of the sin of God's people over the course of centuries that they have been in the land. Sin corrupts the earth. But interestingly, again, I like how it says in verse 12, God saw. God saw the earth, and behold, it was filled with violence. You get this language in the Psalms, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, they're at least the first three verses are effectively the same. Where it says there, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And then verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. And he says, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt spoiled, ruined. There is none who does good, not even one. God looks down and He sees the sins of man. He looks down from heaven. and he, Now, He's omniscient. He knows this, right? This, this is, again, language to accommodate for us to say God sees the sin. God knows what's going on. He looks down from heaven. He sees that the earth is corrupt. It's filled with violence. What violence? Well, the violence of these mighty men of old that we saw last time. These, um, a lot of these uh, people probably are the legendary heroes that you see in other uh, world uh, stories, like you know the Babylonian myths of Gilgamesh and other things like that. These are probably stories of real people. And in fact, you know, when we go to the Ark Encounter, we're going to learn that. Uh, there are flood stories throughout all of you know, civilization. Every civilization has a flood narrative. Now, some of them are quite fantastical. I think one of them suggests that God was angry because of all the noise that the people were... <laughs> you know, kind of like the old man is like, shut that radio off! You know, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know but the point is, is that all of these flood narratives, all these flood stories suggest that there was a flood, <laughs> right? And that in some cases, you've got the true account preserved in God's Word, and you have, in other cases, um, you know, mythologized accounts of it to explain away. But either way, there is a flood narrative in, in, in nearly every civilization on the earth. And God sees the sin and sees the corruption on the earth. And he's going to bring judgment. It was filled. Uh, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. 
Now, given what we saw last time, it's no wonder God has moved to judgment. And as we said last time as well, the flood is a foretaste of far greater judgment yet to come. Now, as a fallen human being myself, who has a hard enough time seeing my own sin in the proper light, <laughs> I, always, I often think that it, God gives us, this is my own thought, okay? I don't, I, I don't derive this out of anything other than just my own thinking. But I think God gives us a grace in that he doesn't allow us to see our sin as he sees it. Now, he may give you a glimpse, and I think, like in the case of Isaiah, he probably got a glimpse of his sinfulness when he had the vision of the Lord in the temple, right? What does he say? He says, I am undone. <laughs> Literally, the word means I'm, I'm falling apart, I'm disintegrated. You know, you think of the old Warner Brother cartoons when, the, you know, the, <laughs> you know, Sylvester or whatever falls apart, and, you know, but he says, I am undone. Why? Because my eyes have seen the sovereign. My eyes have seen Adonai, the king, on his throne. And then he realizes, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So if I have a trouble seeing my own sin in the proper light, I can't imagine what a holy God sees when he looks upon his once very good creation and sees it corrupted due to growing sin. Prophet Habakkuk says, Lord, your eyes are too pure than to behold evil. And it was, of course, the sin that was imputed to Christ on the cross that caused Christ to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father could not look upon his son. He had to turn his face because we talk about, you know, in the blessing that sometimes I use from uh, the book of Numbers, where we see, you know, may the, you know, may the face of the Lord shine upon you. That, that's, that's a blessing. When God's face is turned toward you, that is blessing. When his face is turned away, that is cursing. And when he turns his face away from his son to the point where his son is forsaken, that's, that's God, because God cannot look upon the fact that his son was bearing the weight of the sins of the world. That's what we see here, too. He sees the sin growing in the world, and he is disgusted. So then God speaks to the one righteous and blameless man upon the face of the earth and warns him of the coming judgment. In verse 13, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, or the end of all flesh has come before me, some translations may say. For the earth is filled, again, filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them at Shahach. I will destroy them with the earth. Now Noah, right, when, when Noah first comes on the scene in, in the end of chapter 5, his father Lamech speaks and he says, uh, he calls his name Noah because out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. His father thought that Noah would be the one to bring rest to God's people. Now, to be sure, God will save the world through Noah, but it is only a temporary rest, because true rest comes from Christ, the greater Noah. This is, Noah is not the seed of the woman, okay? 
but he is again in the line of the seed of the woman, and he foreshadows the seed of the woman, because as Noah was preserved through the flood, we are preserved through the waters of baptism. We're going to come back to that in a moment, because Peter makes mention of this in his first epistle. But here, again, the flood is coming. Judgment is coming upon the earth. But now we're going to look at verses 14 through 17 as we see the salvation of the ark. The salvation of the ark. Look at verse 14, where God now continuing in his command to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, my Bible has a footnote, says an unknown kind of tree. It's literally translated from, transliterated from the Hebrew. In the Hebrew it says gopher, okay? So we're not quite sure what the wood probably was. Make, your, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 30, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof or a skylight or some kind of uh, covering on it for the ark. And finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So in these verses, God gives Noah instructions to save his family through the building of an ark, a teva, a teva. Now this word is only used here in Genesis to refer to the ark. And it's used in Exodus chapter 2 to refer to the little basket that baby Moses was in. That was an ark, okay? So you've got a teva there, you've got a teva here. Now obviously the ark that Noah builds is way bigger than the basket that Moses was put in. I can't imagine Moses' sister Miriam building an ark that's 450 feet long. And <laughs> so okay, it's for all for one baby, here you go. No, it was a little basket, but again, that was also covered with pitch on the inside to keep it watertight. It's just an interesting little factoid there about the, the, uh, the word there for ark, teva. Now, outside of the dimensions of the ark and the fact that it has three levels, a window and a door, not much else is known about the ark. Now, again, it's given in cubits, and uh, I remember as a kid growing up listening to records, right? We all remember records. And uh, comedian Bill Cosby had a record where he had a skit where he's Noah, right? And, and God speaks to him, and he's, you know, Noah's sitting there working, and God says, Noah. And he says, I want you to build an ark. And, of course, he says, what's an ark? You know, I, said, I want you to make it 300 cubits long. And it's like, what's a cubit? You know? So anyway, I, I just, my mind goes to that. But here we have the, the, the approximate uh, dimensions of the ark. Uh, cubit uh, generally is thought to be about a foot and a half long, 18 inches, 45 centimeters, give or take, uh, depending on the type of cubit here. But given the measurements here, if you translate that to uh, 18 inches per cubit, you've got an arc that is 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's big. All right, well, how long is a football field? That's 100 yards. That's 300 feet. All right, so the ark is longer than a football field by half. Okay? It's longer by half. 
It's also pretty wide, 75 feet wide. That might be about as wide as a football field. No, a football field is what, 50 yards wide? 50 yards wide, okay, so that's, all right, not as wide as a football field. But it's long, and it's high, 45 feet high. It's got three levels, an upper level, a middle level, a lower level. Uh, some have suggested that the three levels correlate to the, the three levels of the, the heavens. So you got the earth, the heavens, the skies, and then the heaven above, you know, the heavens of heavens where God resides. I don't know about that. It just says three levels uh, in, in the ark. Um, it's it's, it's going to have a skylight, and it's going to have a door, okay? Now, when we, if you're going with us to the ark encounter, you're going to see a replica of the ark, okay, that, that they built there. And, of course, they're going to be taking some liberties as to you know, how, you know, because we don't have those details, what it looks like inside. But, you know, they're making educated guesses about how it might have looked, how they might have stored the animals, how they might have filtered water, how they might have stored feed and all these things. Because that's what we're going to see here. He's going to say, take food. You know, pretty soon we're going to learn that the animals come and all these things. This is a big structure. This is a huge structure. It's not like you see in the little kitty books, you know, with the little boat with the giraffe with his neck, you know, sticking out of the portal, and, you know, the hippos kind of, like, flowing over the side, bouncing along on the waves. No, this is a big, giant box, okay? It's not meant to sail. It's meant to survive a global flood. So in verse 17, note again, this flood is brought by God. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters. Remember what uh, we saw in Hebrews 11 where he says, where Noah was warned of something he had yet to see. So he had yet to see rain and flood in, in this level. Um, we'll get to it when we get to the flood part. It's not just rain, okay? <laughs> We're not just talking... 40 days worth of rain, and that, you know, covers the whole world. If we're talking a cataclysmic uh, 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 catastrophe of epic proportions, as we'll look at next time. But, again, this is God bringing the judgment. He is the one who's going to bring the floodwaters. God is bringing judgment, though he uses natural means, floodwaters and such. It is he that is doing it, so that everything on earth shall die why? Well, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Now, I mentioned something about baptism earlier. This is a very enigmatic statement in Peter's first epistle in chapter 3. There's a lot of things going on. I'm not sure what Peter was eating that day, but... <coughs> Excuse me. But in 1 Peter chapter 3... First Peter chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 11, but the verse I really want to look at is uh, verse 21. And hold on, I'm just looking at something else too, so. Okay. So in First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18, Peter there writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 
in the spirit, that is continued into the next sentence, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That in itself is, there's a lot of interpretive challenges there. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Here's the verse I want to look at, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. There's another reference to baptism in the New Testament here that doesn't reference the flood, but references what Noah or what Moses went through uh, in 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians ten verse starting in verse one. This is in the context here, this is in the context of food offered to idols and the idea of Christian liberty and, and the weaker and uh, stronger brother. But he comes and starts in chapter ten, verse one. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That is the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then it goes on. Now these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. So you've got these... Two instances in the history of God's people in the Old Testament, the flood and the crossing of the Red Sea, and both Peter and Paul call that a baptism of sorts. <laughs> in the sense is that they are saved through the waters from the judgment of God, right? When, when the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, who got wet? The Egyptians got wet, right? They were preserved through that. All right? When God brought the floodwaters upon the earth, who got wet? And I'm not talking about like sprinkled or spritzed with the rain. Who got wet? <laughs> Everything except what was on the ark. Okay? The point is that this idea of baptism is you are either submitting yourself to the waters of baptism as a, as a sign and seal of the salvation that we have in Christ, or you're going to suffer in the waters of judgment, whether that's the Red Sea or the flood or what God is going to bring when he comes at the end of the age, the fire that comes at the end of the age. But this idea of being preserved through the floodwaters, Peter says that the ark, in a sense, points to the baptism that we have in Christ. As God saved Noah and his family in the ark, God, in a sense, signs and seals the promise of salvation through faith by the waters of baptism. Now, just as God provided the ark to save Noah and his family through judgment, God gives us his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from a far greater judgment. Again, historical fact that points to a greater spiritual reality. And that greater spiritual reality is that we are going to be judged for our sins unless we are placing our faith and trust in Christ alone for our salvation. 
Just as, God, or just as Noah trusted God and God preserved him through the flood, if we trust Christ, we are preserved from the fires of judgment to come. And finally, in verses 18 through 22, the covenant that God makes with Noah. Here we see God establishing his covenant with Noah here. So he says, but, it's my favorite word, in case you forgot, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. That's just there in case you're wondering. You know, a lot of people like to say, well, how did Noah get all the animals? Well, God brought them to him. <laughs> right? They shall come into you to keep them alive. Well, how can God do that? Well, God created them. All right? I mean, I mean, it's only, it only doesn't make sense if you already reject God from the very beginning. Okay? If you believe in a God who can say, you know, light, and light appears, then is it really any more difficult for him to say, all right, you two elephants, you need to go over there, okay? <laughs> There's a big boat over there waiting to save you. And the elephant's like, you know, whatever they, you know, you know they just go and they do what they're, what they're told to do, right? <laughs> you like that? You like my elephant noises there? <laughs> you know, or to tell a couple of lions, go. And they're like, okay, you know, they, and they, off they go. I mean, some of these objections are silly on the face of it, because they come at it from a, a, a presupposition of rejection to begin with. Verse 21. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. So, I mean, here you get to see, you know, why is the ark so big for eight people? Because he's going to be carrying a lot of animals. He's going to be carrying a lot of food and a lot of, you know, I mean, all kinds of stuff there. It shall serve as food for you and for them, them being the animals. And then verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now here, this is the first actual, I think I may have misspoke when I said you don't see the word covenant until Abraham. No, you see it here with Noah. I, I, but here is the first time you actually see the word covenant here in the Hebrew, the word berit or berith. Uh, it speaks of an arrangement, a formal arrangement between two parties. Um, and here, God, instead of wiping everything out and starting over with a new creation, decides to save Noah, his family, and mated pairs of all kinds of animals. Of course, with the clean animals, you're going to see seven mated pairs. But here, this is a covenant. Now, the details of the covenant, you don't see until uh, chapter 8, verse 21 and following, and chapter 9 in verse 11. So we could peek ahead there if you'd like. In chapter 8, verse 21... After Noah gets off the ark, he builds an altar and uh, took some of the clean animals and sacrificed them. And in verse 21, he says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse or dishonor the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. 
while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That's the Noahic covenant. And again, it's reiterated in verse 11 of chapter 9. I establish my covenant. I set my covenant with you, Noah, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Again, it's not a salvific covenant. It's a gracious covenant, but it's not a salvific covenant in the sense of God is promising eternal life and salvation through you know, Jesus Christ as in the new covenant or uh, you know, the, the, the way that the old covenant points and, and prefigures the new covenant. This is a covenant of common grace. This is a covenant in which God says, I will withhold judgment. Until the end, when I, it will come in fire. But never again will the floodwaters come and destroy the earth. I will, and, and until the time that I bring final judgment, it will be allowed to continue on in its normal course. In its normal course. Now again, notice where God says here about all the living animals after their kinds. We looked at this uh, on, when we looked at the days of creation and how God created the animals according to their kind. Uh, this does not refer to every species. That's, again, another critique that the skeptics will say, well, there are like you know, 18,000 million billion species or whatever the number they say. How can they all fit on the ark? Well, we're not talking species. That, that's a common modern way of speaking. Okay? You, are, you are doing a kind of a, uh, a fallacy there where you're kind of in, importing into a particular word in the Bible your own particular meaning that you want to put into that word. It doesn't refer to every, kind, every species. Kind probably is more closely associated with genus or family than it is with the species, right? You know, I mean, we have a German shepherd that is a species of dog. Our next-door neighbor has something that is not, very, not at all like a German shepherd, but it is a species of dog, right? My sister has a little thing this big. It is a species of dog. My dog is like this. Her dog is like that. Right? They're all a species of the kind of dog, or the genus of dog, the family of dog. We'll get into the kinds uh, later, but the idea here is you don't need to save every cat. <laughs> you don't need to save every elephant or every, you know, you need to have representative kinds in which you have enough genetic material in order to then through macroevolution, or no, microevolution, got the wrong word there, through microevolution, then they can propagate and, and uh, select, you know, natural selection, then you will get the different species of animals that we see today. In the end, we see that Noah here then did all that God commanded him to do. So just as we bring this to a close, this is part one of Noah and the Flood, in which God promises judgment, yet saves, promises to save Noah and his family. Now, lost in all this, or maybe it's not lost, hopefully I've been trying to bring it out, is God's long-suffering and patience. God is not a capricious judge, right? He's not like, ah, you know, all the sin on the earth, and then just says, rah, and just wipes it all out, right? It's kind of like what, you know, a two-year-old would do <laughs> when, something, <laughs> when they don't get their way. Ah, you know, and they scream, and, you know, our, our grandson kind of has taken to screaming when he doesn't get his way. It's like, just like every other two-year-old that's ever lived in the world, right? 
Um, no, God is not capricious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, God is not capricious. He's long-suffering. His judgment is long-suffering. He is quick to love. He is slow to anger. He is quick to forgive. He is slow to anger. Again, remember, he says uh, in the previous section, right, um, where he says the, the days of man shall be 120 years. In other words, even after he saw all the wickedness growing in the earth, he gives them 120 years. <laughs> now, of course, during that time, Noah is building the ark so he can save him and his family. But again, that's 120 years in which Noah, as a herald of righteousness, is proclaiming the coming judgment to people. And they are rejecting. As, we, as our Lord says in one of the parables, it's like, just as in the days of Noah, the people are laughing and eating and drinking and marrying and giving and marrying, and all of a sudden, boom, the judgment comes. And, it's, and he says, it's exactly how it's going to be on the day of my return. People are going to be marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking and having parties, and all of a sudden, the end comes. But God is, is not capricious. He, he doesn't lose his temper. He, he suffers long with our sins. I may have referenced this passage before, too. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but it's one of my favorite passages. It's when God proclaims his glory and shows his glory to Moses. And when he puts him in the cleft of the rock, we're told that the, that, uh, the Lord proclaims his name to Moses. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Well, just like last time, the take-home for us uh, from this passage is that sin brings judgment. Now, we don't see that so often in this world, in our current day and age. We are accustomed to grace, right? We are accustomed to being able to do whatever we want and, and not feeling any repercussions for it. Uh, but that is, you know, that's, what, that's the fallacy of the man in Romans 2. Right where God says, "Do not," or Paul says, "Do not presume upon the kindness and forbearance of God, knowing that His forbearance is meant to lead you to repentance." Because otherwise, that wrath that you are sort of thinking is escaping is just being stored up until that dam bursts and then it comes out. The good news is that God is gracious and does provide a way of salvation. For Noah, it was the ark. That was a, because Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord uh, gave him uh, instructions to preserve him and his family and a sampling of all life on the earth. God is gracious. And for us, of course, salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone for our sins. So with that, I'll stop. We will look next time, Lord willing. Next time will be... Uh, June 4th, we'll look at chapter 7, or as I like to call it, Noah and the Flood Part 2.